Mozambique is a country that least contributes to the climate change. However, is more exposed to natural hazards. The increase in frequency and magnitude of cyclones and floods that hit Mozambique with many loss of lives and also painful damage to public and private infrastructure, causing also a food security disruption. We know the heartache of losing everything to disasters. And we have ingrained in our culture the importance of building resilience to calamities. So if our experience could be useful to others, we would be happy to and very eager to share our expertise. You just heard Mozambique's Minister of Finance, Ernesto Tonella, and Japan's Deputy Vice Minister for International Affairs at Japan's Ministry of Finance, Kentaro Ogata. Both bear witness to the devastating impact that disasters caused by natural hazards had had on their respective countries. Hello, and welcome to What Have We Learned? The Evaluation Podcast. My name is Carmel Nonai. I'm the director of the Independent Evaluation Group in charge of the Finance, Private Sector, Infrastructure, and Sustainable Development Department, and I will be your host. Today, we will discuss the growing threat of disasters caused by natural hazards and what we have learned about building up resilience to them to reduce the risk of the damages they cause. The floods in Pakistan, the extended heat waves and drought that have fueled wildfires across regions, and the above-average hurricane season battering the Atlantic are just some of the severe weather events we have seen recently. We are witnessing how climate change is amplifying the severity and impact of disasters by contributing to more destructive droughts, floods, and storms. Disasters caused by natural hazards increasingly threaten the lives and livelihoods of the world's poor and disaster-vulnerable populations. In fact, 82% of deaths caused by natural hazards and extreme weather occur in low- and lower-middle-income countries. In this episode, we will explore how a more severe risk environment has been reshaping the way the World Bank and its partners approach disaster risk reduction. We will discuss the cost-effectiveness of disaster risk reduction investment, when and how can disaster risk reduction efforts be implemented, and why disaster risk reduction is such a key component of adapting to climate change. To do this, I will be taking you through a fascinating discussion on this topic that I have the pleasure of moderating during the recent World Bank and International Monetary Fund annual meetings. In addition to Minister Tonella from Mozambique and Deputy Vice Minister Ogata from Japan, from whom we heard at the very beginning, we had the privilege of hosting Norway's Minister of International Development, Anna Schwernerin, and the President and CEO of the Bezos Earth Fund, Andrew Steer. We will also hear from our Director General in IEG, Alison Evans, and our co-host for this event, Bernice Van Bronhorst, the World Bank's Global Director of the Urban Disaster Risk Management Resilient and Land Global Practice. Let's start with Andrew Steer and his take on how the practices and thinking around disaster risk reduction have evolved over the years. The bank is part of a, a, a major shift in the way we think about these issues. Um, I, I was living in Jakarta as the World Bank Country Director on the 26th of uh, December 2004, uh, when the tsunami hit. Um, more than 200,000 lives were lost in Aceh. I went up there more than 30 times in the next 18 months. 
I think we responded as well as we possibly could. But to be absolutely honest, there weren't the expertises that we could call upon. We simply didn't have the professionalism as to how to respond. And this was just a response, let alone um, build back better, so to speak. So I think we did a good job, and I think that actually led to all kinds of progress. But it's a different world now. It's a different world in, in, in two senses. One, the capacity that organizations like the World Bank and some of the other organizations have is just much, much richer. Um, second, of course, the problem is much greater. Um, we won't necessarily have more tsunamis, but we certainly will have more extreme weather events. And science can now tell us that. If the water is warmer, if the air is warmer, more water will be absorbed and, uh, and winds will be stronger. And in a very difficult case, the Secretary General, I believe, of the United Nations declared the hunger in southern Madagascar as, um, as, as, a, as the first truly, um, uh, truly a sort of a demonstrated climate uh, disaster that we've, that we've had. So, so what do we need to do? Um, well, what we can't do is keep going the way we've been going. We simply will not have the resources to keep responding. This is an important point that Andrew Steer makes. In fact, over the last decade, the World Bank has developed a large portfolio of both lending and analytical activities aimed at helping countries shift from post-disaster response toward pre-disaster risk reduction. Here is Bernice Van Bronhorst speaking about the evolution of the World Bank's approach. Andrew referred to it, no? When you were country director in Indonesia in 2004, tsunami hit. Um, the bank really didn't have the expertise, though. We, were, we, we did reconstruction. It's, it's in our title, right? IBRD, the International Bank for, you know, for Reconstruction and Development. We forget the R there sometimes, but we did a lot of reconstruction. We really didn't think much about um, disaster risk reduction or indeed building back better. No? And I think lessons from, um, you know, from obviously major disasters like the, you know, the, the, the Indian Ocean tsunami, the, the, you know, the Eastern Japan great um, earthquake and tsunami, but of course many, many other disasters, you know, hurricanes in Central America, in the Caribbean, in, you know, in the Pacific, in the Africa region. Um, we've really um, built our expertise and really started, I think, what we can honestly call a paradigm shift away from post-disaster reconstruction and, and, and indeed humanitarian aid to really starting to think ex-ante risk reduction. How can we make schools resilient? How can we make our infrastructure resilient? How can we prepare governments like the government of Mozambique to get ready both in terms of making risk reduction of key critical infrastructure, but also in terms of financial instruments. So a lot of thinking about, you know, disaster risk finance and insurance and how can we, you know, come up with new uh, instruments that can really help countries deal with the crisis at the moment. This paradigm shift that Bernice mentioned has also been driven by increased access to a science and technology. These advances continue to offer clarity as to what efforts contribute to the severity of natural hazards and provide more tools to predict when a natural hazard will occur. Andrew Steer illustrated this point nicely in what he describes as different time horizons and the level of accuracy with which is now possible to anticipate natural hazards. Over the last 10 years, the introduction, for example, of parametric um, disbursement techniques has been a major breakthrough. 
But that, if you like, was phase one. That says when the wind reaches a speed of 100 kilometers an hour, we disperse money. That was an incredible breakthrough. The bank was pretty central in that whole thing. That's now fairly standard. We can do much better than that, though. We can go one step further back because we now have the capacity to actually anticipate much more accurately. Think about three different time horizons. One is sort of the typhoon or the hurricane. How, how much do we know? When do we know it? We now know earlier. We know with much more detail. And we're now seeing in countries like Bangladesh astonishing disbursements of funds even before the hurricane even arrives. And that can save 50% of the money and can save 50% of the loss of lives. So we can now uh, disperse funds, we can take action before something even happens. But then there's the next time horizon is, if you like, the El Nino type thing, two or three years. We now have the capacity of anticipating that with a lot more accuracy. So that means, again, we can get engaged much earlier on. Then the final uh, sort of time horizon we need to understand is the kind of 10 to 30 years, the real climate change effects. And what we can now do uh, through uh, amazing um, uh, big data, uh, through artificial intelligence, uh, uh, through incredibly sophisticated models that could never be run even 10 years ago, we're able to actually do projections that are all probabilistic, of course, about which of the 15,000 river basins in the world will suffer the biggest impact and what will that impact look like. Now that has a lot of implications if you want to prepare because you can't afford necessarily to put money everywhere. You can't afford to invest in protection everywhere, but we ought to move towards a system where we can anticipate. We are not doing that now, almost at all. I want to bring Alison Evans in here with very interesting remarks on the cost effectiveness of these disaster risk reduction solutions as a powerful argument for scaling up investment in them. Alison pointed to evidence from IEG's recent evaluation of World Bank's support for disaster risk reduction on the impact of these investments and how best to support them among a host of competing priorities. And the good news is that investments to reduce the risk of disaster from natural hazards do work and can deliver clear dividends for people and economies. Evidence confirms that investments in resilient infrastructure have a strong positive net present value for every dollar invested. When countries rebuild infrastructure after disasters to be more resilient, it can reduce the impact of future disasters by as much as 30%. Yet, between 2010 and 2019, only around 4% of global overseas development assistance linked, was linked to disaster work and was linked toward prevention and preparedness for disasters coming from natural hazards. And this, of course, reflects in part the many competing priorities for ODA and the many competing priorities bearing down on already impossibly overstretched government budgets. So how can these priorities be reconciled in favour of urgent action for disaster risk reduction? And how can the case for scaling up the support uh, be made and be made convincingly? A recent ev evaluation undertaken by my group, the Independent Evaluation Group of the World Bank Group, examined a decade's worth of World Bank support for reducing disaster risks uh, caused by natural hazards to inform the World Bank scale-up of its support to climate change adaptation. 
And the evaluation finds that the World Bank has a strong track record of building the necessary evidence of risks on costs, on benefits, to influence the uptake of disaster risk reduction by borrowing countries. It also finds that disaster risk reduction is everyone's business and that World Bank investments made better progress when focused on ministries of finance and critical line ministries rather than disaster agencies alone. The evaluation evidence also confirms the importance of sustained engagement and finding the right entry points to move from an approach emphasizing response and reconstruction to one emphasizing mitigation and reduction of disaster risks for the longer term. The evaluation also found evidence of the power of moving beyond isolated project interventions to put countries on a pathway towards more transformative change. And this requires doing the hard work of strengthening institutional capacities, of designing and putting in place new policies and building a systemic approach often using multiple instruments and interventions to building resilience across critical infrastructure and service delivery. This is no small agenda, but one that ultimately pays off in saved lives and more resilient, climate-compatible livelihoods. Moving beyond isolated projects to pursue transformative change is something Mozambique has done very well, and that is why having Minister Tonella's voice was so important in the discussion. He described how the country has taken a comprehensive approach to this agenda with great results. One of the main challenges we have is the ability to adapt and recover from the multiple effect of natural disasters due to lack of uh, resources. That's why, uh, in our view, uh, there is no other way to go rather than to step for climate change uh, adaptation and build uh, resilience. And we are implementing, implementing a series of reforms aimed at improving our capacity to deal with prevention, build re resilience and strengthen social and financial protection against the impact of climate change related uh, disasters. For example, our government first approved uh, the National Adaptation and Climate Change Mitigation Strategy uh, almost 10 years ago. Uh, and in line with the Sandal framework uh, for disaster risk reduction, the, the government adopted in 2017 the Master Plan for Disaster Risk Reduction, a strategical uh, instrument that guides policies at all stages of the disaster cycle. In the same year, a disaster management fund was created and includes among the fund's revenue scheme a location of a percentage of the state budget as a contribution uh, from the government, as well as a contribution from private sector and corporation uh, donors. Most recently, the, the, the financial protection component was improved uh, with the strengthening of a legal, legal framework and approval of the disaster financial protection uh, plan in the course of 2022. And within this context and with support of World Bank, uh, Mozambique has initiated the development of a financial protection agenda against disaster, which includes a, a risk retention and risk transfer me mechanism, such, such as uh, insurance. Uh, and we are at a very advanced stage in contracting the first serving 
uh, insurance package. In addition, uh, we are further exploring opportunities related to contingency loans, which could allow us to rapidly trigger the release of credit in aftermath of a disaster event. Mozambique's story is inspiring and serves as a model for weaving climate adaptation into policies and programs at multiple levels. The current global context is very complex and governments are dealing with compounding crises on top of the lingering effects of the pandemic. In this context, it can be hard to identify the right moment to invest in disaster risk reduction or even to see why it's a good investment. This is a very insightful exchange between Bernice and Andrew on the economic case for disaster risk reduction and identifying entry points to deploy these efforts. There's a lot of evidence, of course. Now, we have plenty of studies. I mean, I don't know. We can... There's hundreds of studies, I think, that show that you, you know, every dollar invested in disaster risk prevention gives you a... I don't know, six to ten dollars in, 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 in avoided losses. No, so again, the economic case is very clear. And of course, we do that and then we, we do these studies also at the country level to really kind of highlight, you know, why it makes sense to be investing your scarce resources in the in disaster risk reduction, in prevention, in early warning systems, in, you know, to, you know, have all of these avoided losses in the future. Um, it's easier said than done. Resources are scarce. When there's a humanitarian disaster unfolding, it's imperative that we step up, know that you respond. I mean, you know, so, so there is always going to be that tension. What we have found, I think, operationally, um, again, I think in this last decade, is that when a natural disaster occurs, whether it's you know an earthquake or it's a you know climate related disaster, it's actually a great moment to start talking about longer term adaptation and longer term investment in risk reduction. So that's that's often been where we really start getting traction with this agenda with governments. Um, and then maybe the last point is I think it's also critical coming back to what we've been saying that, you know, whatever we do these days in a sort of post-disaster response and reconstruction mode has to be built back better. We have to do that. We have to use the latest science, the latest information, the latest modeling that we have in terms of the risk exposure so that when we build back better, when we rebuild, that we don't, right, that we address these risks, not just today's risks, but also future uh, climate risks. I agree very much with uh, Bernice that we need to, we need to convey the astonishing um, returns that come from this. And we need to simplify things. I mean, part of us is our problem. We tend to make things too complicated. And a lot of ministers will say, I don't get it. You know, I know how to do renewable energy or I know how to do a jobs program. But I, I mean, what is all this little bits and pieces of adaptation? It's also complicated. And the adaptation community, you know, and I take the, partly the blame for this uh, along with others, is says, well, it's all very, it's all very location specific. You know, you can't generalize. Well, then what can you do? Um, so what you need to say is, um, you know, I moved to Hanoi in 1997 as a country director of the World Bank. And the first month we had a typhoon. 3,000 people died, most of them fishermen who had no knowledge the weather was even coming and others in low-lying areas. Today, instead of killing 3,000 people, they estimate that less than 10 would lose their lives. Um, why? Because now every fishing boat has a radio, tells you when things are coming. And the, the breakthrough was, um, which we were part of, um, there are no schools now in the low-lying areas that don't have two, two floors. 
Um, and by the way, they have ramps up so you can even take your goat and your donkey or, or the water buffalo is a bit too heavy. But, but uh, so, you know, that comes, that comes to life. You know, when uh, Ngozi Okonjo-Awela, when she was at the bank, you know, we started the Adaptation Commission because we felt that there wasn't a narrative the, the way there was on, on, on mitigation. There wasn't a link to the economy. And somebody in the press conference said to her, you know, it's so complicated. What is it? And she said, well, it's not really. I was in Bangladesh last month. And adaptation is you don't have chickens, you have ducks, uh, i.e. it's going to flood. <laughs> Better to have someone that can swim. <laughs> You know, and so that, oh, wow, it's actually not so complicated. But, but I mean, more seriously, I mean, there is now an emerging set of information that can really inform this. And we have to move away from what, for most of my career, most of the World Bank's career, when we talk about economic development, we just focus on the return. We don't focus on managing risk. If you run a big fund, you don't just try and max maximize return. You maximize return subject to having a resilient portfolio. We have not done that in the development profession. And we need to be much, much more professional about this. And maybe at times, maybe you'll have temporarily a little less, but my goodness me, you'll have a much, much more prosperous future. So we need that mindset change and we've got to remind people of the cost of not adapting. We've just got to raise the temperature on this issue. So let's do it. Disaster risk reduction is key to climate adaptation and to development. Along with the loss of lives and damage to vital infrastructure, disasters caused by natural hazards can reverse development gains and threaten to push more people into poverty. This is what Anne Schreverin and Kentaro Gata had to say about the importance of addressing risk as fundamental for sustainable development. I feel that priorities have shifted with most donors. And the reason why I say that priorities are or have shifted, at least I can say that on behalf of my own country, that is because we see that we are, you know, past, uh, past achievements are lost and future development efforts are undermined uh, because, of, because of natural disasters. So we are forced, we have been forced to, to shift our priorities. But in terms of finance, we have said that we will, we will deliver on, on doubling our climate finance by 2026. But more importantly, and this is my main point, we, we want to triple financing for climate adaptation. And we need to push that agenda a lot more among the donors because financing climate adaptation is fighting poverty. You know, when we talk about financing climate adaptation in practice, we're talking about food security, we're talking about climate smart agriculture, we're talking about saving livelihoods. So, um, so poverty reduction and climate adaptation is just two sides of the same coin. The current world is uh, facing multiple overlapping crises. We see climate change, of course, the COVID-19 and conflict, inflation, rising debt, and food insecurities. These global challenges are all particularly impacting the most vulnerable. To make it worse, the past few years have clearly illustrated that the systemic nature of the risks spreading from uh, health to economic systems and to global well-being. Under this severe environment, sustainable development and adaptation have become much harder to achieve. So we need globally coordinated response and integrated and comprehensive action, as Minister mentioned. 
I would like to end with a forward-looking intervention from Bernice about where the World Bank is headed in its support for disaster risk reduction and how it will take on board the lessons learned from the past decade captured in IEG's evaluation. And of course, we've introduced over the last year now our, our country climate and development reports, which are exactly doing that at each country level, looking at what are the economic impacts over the medium and long term of not adapting to climate change and, and, and really costing that so that we can have that conversation with ministries of finance. So um, we're rolling these out across um, you know, all of our client countries. So a lot of work. Pleased to say, of course, a lot of that was done with the support of GFDR. We would not have done it without uh, all of the, the, the support from GFDR and very you know, generous donors who stood behind us. And as a result, um, as the IEG uh, report uh, showed, we have actually tripled now over the last decade, uh, you know, World Bank investments in, in disaster risk reduction, which is really um, fantastic. We had maybe two, three, if that disaster risk management specialists in the bank today, we have 140. Um, it's a professional family. Um, we have them in every region. They work across the globe, and it's really, it's really a you know a professional family now that that didn't used to exist in the bank. So again, just to highlight that that paradigm shift. Having said that, there's not there's still a lot to do, of course, as the IEG report also uh, you know we're not we can't sit on our laurels. We've heard a lot about the impacts of climate change. We know it's only going to get worse. We know that the extreme weather events are going to just keep coming at us. So we'll need to be there. There's constant work to inc keep increasing our mainstreaming of this agenda in, 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 in other sectors, whether it's in the healthcare sector, uh, I mean, you name it. We're really looking at you know, resilient energy systems, etc. really trying to um, mainstream this work. Um, and then some of the other recommendations that the report came out with was really also looking, we need to continue to look at issues of inclusion, for example. No? So whilst a natural disaster is gender neutral, right, in and of itself, the impacts of it are not. No? They are obviously impacted by you know, the gender dynamics in, each, in the society where that disaster is happening. So we are doing quite a lot of work around you know, things like early warning systems. Do women have access to early warning systems? Even simple things like the design of a disaster, of a, of a shelter. Like if there's no separate bathrooms for women in the shelter or, or spaces where women can, can, can you know, safely stay, you'll find that women don't end up going to the, to, the, to the emergency shelters in times of disaster. So it's really a lot of thinking through um, how we can be more inclusive. Of course, disability comes into that as well. So a lot of work, exciting work, some of it basic things like the, just the simple design of a shelter, but all the way to how do you ensure that women have a title to their land. So after a disaster, they can still, you know, access, um, uh, you know, the, you know, they can get, you know, loans, etc. you know, because they, they, they actually can show that they own that property to begin with. So a lot of work around that. And then the other recommendation, and this is my, will be my final, uh, my, the final thing I just wanted to mention, is a lot of work um, that we've started in the last few years. Again, going back to that nexus, like how do we, how do we work better with the, what we call our FCV colleagues? Now these are you know, the, the colleagues working on fragility, conflict and violence, working in fragile states. What we find is that climate change and natural disasters are sort of often tipping points there really work as an amplifier of underlying fragility and conflict. So to the extent that we can work in these countries, work together to reduce the disaster risk will also help um, with stability and less conflict in the, in, the, in the medium and long term. So 
we're, we're working a lot with them around these issues. Um, and on a very practical level, we have a lot of tools that we've developed in the disaster risk management practice over the last decade that are also very applicable when you're working in a fragile context. So again, there's a lot of overlap and, and really a lot of space for us to keep working together and certainly a lot to be done um, as we move forward to the next 10 years. We have come to the end of the episode. This was a fascinating discussion on a topic that is fundamental for climate adaptation and development. I encourage you to read IEG's evaluation, which you can find at IEG.worldbank.org, and to stay tuned for the next podcast episode. This has been What Have We Learned? Thank you for listening. <laughs>